AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon as we're joined by Patrick Kulikan of the Minnesota Reformer, great resource for the latest in Minnesota news and politics, including doing a great job covering all the bills that were passed by the DFL-controlled state legislature over the past few months. In fact, today we'll be chatting about some of those bills, including ones on criminal justice reform and also on non-compete clauses, as well as national speculation from Governor Tim Walls possibly seeking a higher office in the future. So lots to get to today. Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off going through uh, more bills that were through the legislature and maybe some things that you you may have missed over the past few weeks. And one that kind of caught my eye was something you guys are writing about today, which has to do with a number of criminal justice reforms that were passed by the DFL state uh, legis- DFL-controlled legislature, and that's despite the constant attacks we typically hear from Republicans on the DFL as being soft on crime. But they were able to pass a number of criminal justice reforms despite those attacks from Republicans. So what are some of the highlights that the DFL were able to pass during this session, and uh, which ones are mostly getting criticized by the GOP? Yeah, like like you said, uh, I think we all remember the election campaign when uh, Republicans tried to uh, crank up a, an, uh, an older playbook and and hit Democrats as soft on crime, which kind of coincided with a lot of uh, pretty sensational coverage of crime in the local media and the national media. Um, and I think um, after the election results, when the DFL won the trifecta, I think there was a sense uh, amongst uh, criminal justice reformers that uh, it wasn't exactly a mandate from the voters. Uh, it, was, it was a strong signal um, that that the um, the the old uh, playbook uh, wasn't going to work anymore, and that voters were giving a kind of permission to Democrats um, to push ahead on some of the criminal justice reform ideas. So, um, you know, it, certainly a, a big one um, would be the legalization of marijuana. Um, and that was also, uh, there's another provision in, uh, the, the main criminal justice bill that, uh, legalizes drug paraphernalia and, and even drug residue, even if there's drug residue on the paraphernalia. And the idea is to, uh, prevent this kind of revolving door, um, where, uh, somebody gets picked up, um, for paraphernalia when, um, they clearly have a, um, a problem with addiction um, and uh, aren't necessarily the kind of uh, criminal that we ought to be spending um, police and prosecutorial resources on. Uh, another big one is uh, the the ability to to do uh, to serve uh, a good time is kind of a the common uh, phrase. So if a person is incarcerated engages in the kind of programming that's prescribed to them, whether it's in mental health issues or um, drug treatment, um, and they are uh, they follow the rules, they can get out of prison after half of their uh, sentence. Um, and the idea is um, let's create incentives for uh, people to... Um, do better in in prison, and so that when they get out, they're less likely uh, to reoffend. Uh, they they also reduced the terms of uh, the maximum term of probation and, and other uh, forms of supervision 
Uh, traditionally in Minnesota, we've had low incarceration rates, which is a good thing. We've had very high rates of uh, probation and long probationary terms. Um, so they've capped that at five years. The, the Sentencing Guidelines Commission had already done so, but crucially, this um, uh, does so retroactively. So there's people with a, with a, as a probation term as long as 40 years, uh, if you can believe that. And so now uh, we're ending that practice. Um, there's another uh, another provision that allows for uh, that's going to allow for free phone calls uh, for folks in the prison, um, and um, you know I, I think there's a, the common sort of populist response would be, well, why are we making life easier for prisoners? But the idea here is, if they are connected to their uh, family and friends, um, and they have a stronger uh, social and familial network. They're less likely to reoffend. So, so all this stuff, uh, there, there is a, uh, a logic to it all. Um, the Democrats who are pushing these policies say that there's solid evidence uh, that it can work, and uh, you know, it's, it's still not without political risk. I think um, if, if you um, you can imagine the, the campaign ads, if someone uh, got out after only serving only half their term. Only their prison term, and and they reoffend in some uh, spectacular fashion. Uh, you can see how that's definitely going to be part of a, a political campaign. Um, but Democratic camp, uh, criminal justice reformers just stuck with their stuck to their principles. Um, they and they, they in a phrase that I made a couple weeks ago, they they bet on themselves here. Absolutely. And I, and I think uh, as I was even reading through, the some of the DFLers even admitted that, yeah, these might sound lenient in some cases, but they are generally backed by uh, social science. And you were bringing up just that insane statistic, 40 years on probation uh, seems, yeah, most certainly quite excessive. So even though, as the DFLers say, many of these types of proposals are backed by social science, it's still going to uh, be very tough to campaign on them. Um, Talking about some of these provisions that they've put through, I, I take it a lot of these has been passed in other states, so they at least do have some data where they can say, well, something has worked in California with criminal justice reform, whether it comes to probation or however else something works, where they can point to other examples and say, well, these are how things are done in other states. So I imagine they, they did some modeling on what other states did, correct? Yeah, good time policies are, com- are, are common. I think more than half the states have that uh, where you can you can get out early at if you do what you're supposed to in prison, uh, there's a there's a handful of states that uh, that do free phone calls. Uh, so yeah, this stuff is um, a lot of it's been tried elsewhere, and um, and and the the hope is that um, we can uh, prevent recidivism and uh, save everybody a lot of heartache and and money too. You can check more about the DFL's criminal justice reforms that were passed in the last session over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. I want to move on to a commentary that was written today by Molly Coleman, who is the executive director of the People's Parity Project, which is a national profit organizing for a legal system that values people over profits. She was talking about some of the new labor protections that were passed by the DFL legislature, which included things like paid sick leave and wage theft protections. But another area where workers were protected is non-compete clauses. Now, we've talked about this before on the show, and we don't just mean by non-compete 
Pete clauses, you know, media personalities, who you often hear about when you when you talk about or when the conversation moves to non-compete clauses. But non-competes also affect retail jobs, for instance, like uh, Jimmy John's, if you remember that infamous example from a few years ago where Jimmy John's were having their sandwich makers sign non-compete agreements. I believe McDonald's and Sabaro franchises also have non-competes where they try to prevent uh, the same franchises from hiring workers from other restaurants. So uh, certainly uh, we did get a law that was passed that would add some uh, protections for people when it comes to non-compete clauses. So I'm curious, uh, what exactly did the DF, or what exactly was Molly talking about when she was trying to make the point saying that we need to strengthen some of our, or even strengthen the current law that was just passed that has to do with non-competes? Because oftentimes businesses are able to find a way around these types of non-competes or even just have employees not even aware that they're, uh, that non-competes are no longer valid. Yeah, it's important that, that workers, uh, we, we educate workers that they cannot be forced to sign a non-compete clause, and uh, just to remind your listeners, uh, uh, a non-compete clause would prevent uh, somebody from uh, taking a job um, in the same industry, um, and it has the practice of really uh, pushing down wages, um, because uh, if I can't go out and look for a similar job, then I can't go to my employer and say, hey, I need a raise, because otherwise I'm going to leave and go get one somewhere else. It also um, inhibits entrepreneurialism um, because uh, if I have a, um, a great idea um, and I'm, I'm at a company and I have a great idea um, and I've signed a non-compete, uh, I can't go execute on that idea. Um, now, um, that, that's precisely what the, the big corporations said. That's why they need these non-compete clauses, because uh, they, they fear that people are going to take uh, trade secrets um, and, uh, and ruin their, uh, their uh, intellectual property. Um, but we already have trade secret theft laws, um, and uh, we've determined as a state that people ought to be able to go out and, um, and uh, present themselves to the free market. Um, what Molly's afraid of, and I think this is totally reasonable, is that uh, corporations will still present you with a non-compete clause and an employment contract. In other words, they'll just kind of ignore the law, um, which says that a non-compete cla- clause is not enforceable, and try to force you to, uh, and just force you to sign it anyway. And then you'll just, then maybe not knowing any better, you don't know the law. Um, and then um, if you try to go to a competing uh, company, they'll present it to you. Um, and so what she's suggesting is that um, that her fellow attorneys, uh, that the Bar Association uh, make it uh, a, a, an offense that could be you could receive discipline for if you were to present a non-compete clause to an employee. Um, of course, as lawyers draw up these uh, contracts, and um, they would be knowingly um, presenting a contract uh, that could not be enforced, and yet attempting to do so anyway, be sort of a, it's, a, it's a bad faith maneuver. And I, I think you're an attorney, aren't you? Also, got to ask you about this because in Molly's commentary, she was uh, writing about another way employers have tried to get around non-compete clauses, and that has to do with employer-driven debt. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how employers sometimes use this to trap workers in their current job? Yeah, they, the the worker will essentially force you to uh, compensate them compensate them for the training um, that you've received. 
And um, so this has become uh, uh, quite an issue um, and um, uh, hopefully one that's going to get a lot of scrutiny um, from uh, both Congress and the FTC and the legislature. You can read more uh, about Molly's commentary on the non-compete clauses and how we can strengthen that in the future over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, although she did say we made some good first strides with this new non-compete clause that was uh, just passed by the legislature. Final topic I want to talk with you about has to do with some possible national speculation for our current governor, Tim Walls, because he, of course, has presided over this uh, this recent legislative session signing a number of bills into law, lots of progressive legislation that I'm guessing has probably caught the attention of many national Democrats. So I'm curious, what exact chatter is there around Tim Walls when it comes to seeking higher office? Because at least here in Minnesota, his options seem a little bit limited, being that we, of course, have two uh, senators that are incumbents right now, and Amy Klobuchar and Tina Smith, who are uh, at the very least, I would say, popular, especially in the case of Amy Klobuchar. So I'm curious where the national speculation is currently going with uh, Governor Tim Walls. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of impossible to ignore. Um, if, if you just if you look at the signs, uh, he recently posted a, a photo with his uh, with the First Lady Gwen Walls uh, for their anniversary, and they're posing in front of Air Force One, uh, which raised some eyebrows. Uh, he they they spent um, campaign money not taxpayer money, but campaign money on uh, this, uh, to have a drone, uh, or maybe it was two of them, uh, doing a video of the recent, uh, the bill, the, the day when he signed all these bills, budget bills, and uh, they had a pretty big crowd there, um, a much bigger crowd than you would expect to see at a, at a governor bill signing. They held it outside the Capitol. It was clearly made for, uh, to be videoed. Uh, and then released the video, and it had a little bit of a viral moment. Um, E.J. Dion, the, the influential liberal columnist of the Washington Post, uh, wrote up Minnesota, um, including Wall's comments. Uh, you know, he's he's been on national uh, TV more um, certainly than in, the, in his first term. Uh, and so, you know, it just it just has you wondering. He certainly has a, a good profile in terms of the, he's a veteran, he's a teacher, uh, he's certainly a good communicator. He comes from a, a kind of smallish city in a red district. Um, you know, I think he could point to Minnesota and say, I, I came in uh, to a, a divided legislature. We flipped the state, uh, won the trifecta and did all this stuff. So it's you know, it's, it's an impressive resume uh, for national Democrats, um, which is not to say it's bulletproof, um, but, you know, sort of a video of the, the George Floyd riots would be, uh, I think, would become ubiquitous in any kind of a, a national, or I, shouldn't, I should say the, uh, the, the George Floyd murder, uh, the, the rioting that uh, followed George Floyd's murder. Um, but, um, you know, it, it comes down to uh, so many politicians, uh, I think, look themselves in the mirror and they see a potential president. And um, and as at the moment, uh, it certainly looks like the, the Democratic ticket uh, is pretty solidly in place. But Joe Biden is uh, 80 years old and 
um, yeah, so anything can happen. Um, and I think uh, Walls is um, probably uh, thinking about that and thinking about what's next. Um, a third term as governor would be maybe a little unusual. And, um, you know, he's a fairly young guy. He's and seems to be in good health. Um, and so I'm sure uh, he and the people around him um, have a wonder about what uh, what a what a, a run for the Oval Office might look like. Or I could even say, uh, or he can. I could even see uh, that. Uh, obviously, as right now we have Biden Harris largely set as the likely Democratic ticket, but uh, any future Democratic ticket? Well, you look at someone like a Kamala Harris possibly running for president. Well, someone like Tim Walls could give that potential ticket great balance, being as you're kind of alluding to, being a Midwestern governor from a purplish slash blue state who, in Congress, represented a red district. Yeah, that could be very appealing if someone like Kamala Harris is running for president. But then I also do wonder maybe he's kind of uh, showing more of this national speculation to kind of promote the state. I'm kind of thinking ahead. Along the lines of what like Gavin Newsom is doing right now in California, where they're largely just out there promoting their state and promoting their policy, since we've kind of been seeing that increasingly over the past few years. So it would be interesting if he's kind of going that route, or maybe he does have these higher ambitions of possibly being a presidential or even a vice presidential candidate in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think he balances out any uh, presidential ticket um, as a Midwestern governor. Um, especially if it's a, a, a woman, a person of color, um, he balances them out geographically, demographically. Um, I think that's a good point about uh, selling the state and its policies. He has a lot riding on uh, Minnesota's next 10 years. I mean, his legacy uh, will be shaped by what happens with our population, uh, what happens with our economic uh, growth, um, and how Minnesota is viewed um, across the country, um, as a, as a state. I mean, are we a, a dynamic, uh, emerging state or are we, uh, in a, in a state of, uh, paralysis and decline? Um, are we, uh, you know, Georgia, uh, Florida, Texas, states that are growing, um, and growing economically, or you can throw in, if you want to throw in some, some blue states there, Colorado or Washington State, um, uh, or are we, uh, you know, Ohio or uh, Pennsylvania um, or New York? And um, so, so going out and selling um, Minnesota to the country is a smart idea, and, um, and it helps Minnesota, and it helps his own uh, political profile. There's also the possibility of a, of a cabinet selection. Mm. Um, you know, I think if, if you, uh, you know, you raise your profile, that certainly, um, certainly would help a show, um, a president that, um, you can, uh, run a large, uh, politically complex organization and handle the public side of that as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, being, uh, yeah, having some sort of cabinet position, probably something more than like just being the ambassador to a country or something. But yeah, if he gets uh, head one of those big departments, that could be another uh, springboard as well to, uh, to higher office in the future. Now we are just about out of time. We have been speaking with Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor in chief of the Minnesota Reformer. 
Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950.